0: New Testament reading is from Romans 13. We'll focus on a few ideas and a couple of verses here. I'm not going to try to expound uh, this whole passage. And we're going to read all of Romans 13. So we'll read the first seven verses as well as we'll highlight a couple, of, a couple of things in there in our sermon tonight. So Romans 13, I'll read the whole chapter. Romans 13, this is God's word. He gives it to us as people for our good. Let's give our attention to his reading. God's holy word. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is, why, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servant who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. And if you would go to the back of our Trinity hymnal, the Catechism Questions and Answers, the shorter Catechism, page... 8.74, questions 67 through 69, let's read the answers together. This is page 8.74, the back of the red Trinity hymnal, beginning then with question 67. Question 67, which is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is... Thou shalt not kill. What is required in the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. What is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly Or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. Beloved, tonight we consider the sixth commandment, what it means for our lives. And to mention life is really to get to the heart of this commandment. It is at its most basic level about life. And it's about the importance, the sacredness of life. It's about the value of life. It's about God and his sovereignty over life. How we are to value that which the Lord gives and honor him through it all of our days. What is life? Is it one darned thing after another? Is it a series of unfortunate events? Is it an experience where the only things guaranteed are death and taxes? As we survey the scriptures, we find that true life is that which God has in himself. God is life, which means that the meaning of life, the possession of life, the experience of life will all come to us to the degree that we are rightly related to our Creator and whether we commune with Him. If life is in God, then what is death connected to? It's connected to sin and everything that alienates us from God and alienates us from one another. This means that Jesus Christ, since He is the one who reconciles us to God, must then, in the, the human experience after the fall, must then be our absolute source of life. And that is indeed what we find in Scripture. When Jesus comes to testify about himself, he often relates himself to life and the life that he gives. I am the way and the truth and the life. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. To bring all of this back to the sixth commandment, what this means is that in our striving to live in obedience to the sixth commandment, we must then as Christians think about it first and foremost as living by dying to ourselves and letting the life of Jesus Christ become manifest in us. That is how we strive to live in obedience to this commandment as God's people, as Christians, dying to ourselves and letting the life of Christ become manifest in us. So we'll work through the various uh, truths and principles that we see in this commandment, but that is where we are headed tonight. That since Christ is our life, we will only live in obedience to this commandment, uh, which has to do with the importance and the sacredness of life, as we are united to Jesus by faith. First, let's consider a couple of things about the Sixth Commandment. First is the sin of taking life, the sin of taking life. The Sixth Commandment forbids murder. Uh, It does not forbid all killing, but it forbids murder. Murder is when a life is taken unjustly. That is, a, a life is ended without sufficient cause or reason. Sufficient cause or uh, reason would be something like self defense or uh, executing justice in the, the proper process that God lays out for human government. And we read about that both in Numbers 35 and in Romans 13. Self defense is another reason, would be sufficient cause uh, to take a life. And uh, self defense is not murder, and scripture does not forbid protecting life by self defense. One of the realities of living in a fallen world, that oftentimes human beings are made to face these difficult decisions. But the sixth commandment, in no uncertain terms, absolutely. Forbids murder, the unjust taking of a human life. And murder is so heinous in the eyes of God and through Scripture that God has required that life be taken in response to it. Genesis chapter 9, which is not a law that's given only to the people of Israel. It uh, was given after the flood as God lays down a few principles of justice for the whole earth. Genesis nine, verses five through six, "For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God's commandment to Noah to his family, as he's laying out these principles of justice, how is the world to be governed? For the blood of man, I will require a reckoning. Murder is so heinous that God says life is to be taken when murder is committed. And then, of course, we see in Numbers chapter 35, towards the end of that chapter as we read, moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. Uh, to not execute justice in these situations in Israel was to pollute the land. Of course, there's all kinds of, of temptations and opportunities to make a little bit of extra money. If you can skirt justice and, uh, for whatever reason or however that may come about. But God says you are not to do that. You are to execute justice when murder is committed. Murder is an egregious evil because of how it fails to recognize at least two things. And the first thing is that God is sovereign over life. It is His to give. It is His to take away. As created beings, as creatures, that is fundamentally something that we are to recognize, to live uh, with that recognition that our lives are not our own and, and we are not the ones who create life. We are not the ones who give life. And there ought to be, there usually are many experiences in life which refresh that feeling of either helplessness or awe when we see the big picture of life coming together, forming, or life ending. The sense of awe that you may feel in a hospital room after a birth. That's really uh, what, what we're driving at here, that life belongs to God and you hold a new baby, and you realize you didn't, you didn't make this. It was the Lord who, who brought this together. The murder is egregious because it fails to recognize that God is the sovereign giver and Lord of life. And then secondly, murder is an egregious evil because human beings have sacred worth endowed upon them as the image of God. Murder is egregious because it is a contempt for God. It is a direct sin against him, and it is a contempt for him. Johannes Voss, in his uh, catechism commentary, says this, Murder affronts God by destroying an image-bearer of God. Thus, the murderer commits sacrilege by failing to regard the image of God in man as something sacred. That's what what the Lord says to Noah and his family in Genesis chapter 9. Why will he require a reckoning? Because man is the image of God. It fails to recognize that God is the the sovereign giver and Lord of life, murder does. Murder fails to recognize that human beings have sacred worth endowed on them as the image of God. When we consider these things relative to murder relative to the Sixth Commandment, relative to these fundamental principles. Uh, It's hard to go by without thinking in our society, in our uh, day and age of the atrocity of abortion, which fails to recognize both of those things, that, that God is the sovereign giver and Lord of life, that human beings are endowed with sacred worth as the image of God. And when you connect that to the reckoning that God requires for the blood of man, it is something that stops you in your tracks. You realize how much it happens in our world, how it happens sponsored by the state and the egregious evils that we have committed. We ought to mourn and continue to pray uh, that the Lord would change hearts and change Ways in Numbers thirty-five. One of the things that we see is that the, the avenging of blood, the execution of justice, is to be approached prudently and carefully. And this is because it, those uh, who are in question of their guilt or innocence, they don't lose their sacred value. And so, as the Lord is laying out these regulations for His people Israel, He said, "Don't rush to judgment. Don't make a judgment on the basis of only one witness." If anyone kills a person, in verse 30, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The whole idea of the the cities of refuge was to, to slow the process down in order to take much of the passion and the vengeance out of the process as well. It prevents chaos, the way that God appointed this process to be carried out uh, relative to the government that he had set up for his people. We see that in Numbers 35, talking about the avenger of blood. We see that in Romans 13, verses 3 and 4. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. He does not bear, later on he says, he does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, God has given the sword to human governments to be a terror to bad conduct and an encouragement to the good. We don't always see human governments acting in that way, but that is what they have been called to do, to be ministers of God in that sense. And we have had many examples throughout human history of poor ministers, but that is what they have been called to do, and they will answer to God for all of those things. But We see in Scripture again and again and again The egregious evil, the sin of taking life. It's wrong. The unjust taking of human life is wrong. But then, connected to that, of course, is the duty to protect life. So first is the sin of taking life. Next is the duty to protecting, the duty of protecting life. The Catechism speaks of lawful endeavors to protect one's life and the life of others. What are those What are some of those lawful endeavors? We mentioned a couple of them, but self-defense, law enforcement, war, right? Nations have a duty to protect their citizens against enemies, foreign and domestic. Communities have a duty to protect their citizens, the lives of those within their bounds. We have a duty to protect our own lives. We are not to just stand idly by and let things happen to us or those closest To us. All of these things, of course, are rooted in the sacredness and the value of human life. Uh, Many Christians throughout the history of the church have been opposed to the idea of any war or Christians serving in an army or going to war. But again, in a fallen world, God ordains that these kinds of things would be done. Self-defense, just execution uh, of uh, execution of justice, and just war would, would happen. In a fallen world, we are to strive to keep evil at bay that good may flourish. That is what we are to do as as human beings. This is, of course, never done perfectly. It's often not done well, but we are to strive for it. We are not passively to do nothing while life is threatened. We are to use all lawful endeavors to preserve the lives of ourselves and of others. In addition to lawful endeavors to preserve life, the larger catechism speaks of careful studies. So there are, are careful studies of the ways in which we may preserve our lives and the lives of others. You think of most of the world of, of medicine today, scientific discovery, uh, a lot of those things were begun by Christians. Christians who understood that God had given us a world where there would be things that are discoverable. And so as, as biblical Christians, we are not to be opposed to medicine. That, of course, does not mean that we, uh, on the face, accept every kind of treatment or everything that is ever presented to us as a discovery of science. But we are to know that God has made many things in this world discoverable to us in order that life may be bettered and preserved. One of the things that I talk about with the firemen when I'm over at the, uh, at the fire station as their chaplain is that without Christianity their job would not exist. Right? The, the idea that there would be people sitting there waiting for an emergency call so that they can go and make sure that those people who are in need have help immediately that comes from uh, the way that Christians have thought about the sixth commandment. Lawful endeavors to preserve life careful studies to preserve life. I go over there sometimes to visit with them, and they are always in training uh, to figure out, you know, all the the kinds of medical emergencies that they may face when they answer a call and how to treat someone, and the kinds of things that they have to, the kinds of decisions they have to make. You think of even something like lighthouses on the shoreline so that ships could be warned about rocks they were going to run into. Comes out of a respect for human life, agricultural research that has made human, uh, that food for human beings so much more abundant in the last century or two, all of these things arise out of a view of the sacredness of human life and a world that God has left to us that is discoverable. We can exercise dominion to a certain extent over it. So we are to, to have careful studies of how life may be preserved using the things that God has left to us. We also, out of a, a view of the sacredness of life, are to live wisely. We are not to take overly foolish risks that would endanger our own lives. You don't want to be careful about making hard and fast rules about this. I reached out to a couple pastors this week to kind of test the waters on what they were thinking. And we were just thinking about, you know, if you climb Mount Everest, you have a 1% chance of dying. And so we were saying, is that the kind of, of unnecessary risk that is, comes out of a, a failure to recognize the sacredness of human life? One out of every 100 people who attempts to scale Everest ends up dying. Is, does that butt up against the principles found in the sixth commandment? It's important to think about those things uh, in the life that God gives to us. We also find in Romans chapter 13 that what Paul ends up bringing to the fore is love to a neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Flourishing or blossoming up out of our respect for human life and in desire to obey the Sixth commandments, is to be a biblical love. Love is doing for your neighbor what will most serve the ends of their good and God's glory. Love does not always mean doing the comfortable or easy thing or doing that which the world will commend, but love does no wrong to a neighbor. We are to ask ourselves in the lives that we are living, am I loving my neighbor? Am I loving my neighbor? And Paul says, if you have that settled if you are loving your neighbor obedience to all of the other commandments that introduce the idea of a neighbor you will obey do you love the one whom you kill or do you love the one against whom you harbor anger and bitterness do you love someone if you take that which belongs to them do you love someone if you commit sexual immorality with them now that's perhaps one of the greatest lies in our age, in our society, right? That you can love someone and simultaneously be committing sexual immorality with them. The only time that real love and sexual intimacy are aligned is within a biblical marriage. There is no other possibility. So Paul brings before us love of neighbor. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. It does no harm to a neighbor. If we have a respect for the sovereign giver of life, then we will strive to love our neighbors in this way that wants what God wants from them. Interestingly, then, our third and final idea, interestingly, that the Catechism says uh, whatever tends unto the taking away of life is then also breaking the sixth commandment. So we ought to always live in a way that recognizes that our lives are not our own. Therefore, we are to steward our bodies and our souls in ways that make them most conducive to the service and the glory of God. At the end of Romans chapter 13, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. One of the ways that we live in obedience to the sixth commandment is by living temperate lives, understanding the ways that our bodies and souls work. We are to live temperate lives in body. We are to have conscientious and careful use of all things in order to not have a harmful effect on our bodies, our minds, our alertness. So we think of things that we partake in regularly, sleep, food, drink, recreation, medicine, all of these things can have a positive effect up to certain points, but then become inhibitors once they are abused. To abuse any of these things is to give in to the flesh, and we experience all kinds of harmful effects from it. It's a disobedience, a disobedience to the sixth commandment. Paul also says in Romans thirteen, 13, O love to one another. Uh, be, be conscientious of the debt you have towards one another to love each other and to honor each other. So we also, as we're thinking about this commandment, we also need to understand that sin at its most basic level is death and righteousness is life. And since the sixth commandment is concerned with the preservation of and the proper flourishing of life, we need to see the ways in which the dispositions of our hearts, the attitudes of our hearts, can chip away at life. This means that godliness in relationships is another outworking of the sixth commandment. The people in our lives, whether they be spouses, children, parents, if we are not seeking to honor God in the way that we maintain our attitude in those relationships, in the way that we cultivate love in the people that God has given to us in our lives, we break this command. When we don't live with a peaceable, loving, kindly spirit towards each other, death is at work in us. Note the sins listed in Galatians 5. Everyone in, in this list of sins, everyone tends to focus on the beginning of the list and the end of the list because those are the quote-unquote big sins. But listen to the middle of the list. No, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. But then Paul lists these things. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, Envy, and then he says drunkenness and orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. At least half of that list has to do with relational strife and difficulties. So to understand the value of life, to understand the sacredness of man as the image of God, To understand how God desires that life would flourish, that righteousness would flourish in his people, we must have a peaceable and a kindly spirit toward others. Here's again what uh, Johannes Voss says in his Catechism Commentary. The contrary spirit, contrary to peaceable and kindly, that is, an unkind, unreasonable, unloving spirit, will inevitably have a harmful effect both on ourselves and on others. It will disturb our own and our neighbor's peace of mind, and by the influence of the mind on the body, the effect will be to injure, to a greater or lesser degree, our own and our neighbor's bodily health. Anger, stubbornness, A harsh and unfriendly spirit and similar attitudes cannot but have a harmful effect both on the mind and on the body. This is a form of killing which the law of God certainly forbids. Have you ever been around someone who exudes anger, stubbornness, a harsh and unfriendly spirit? And have you noticed the way in which it seems to not only eat away at that person, but the way that it affects those around them, and the way that it disturbs the peace of mind, perhaps, of you as you interact with such a person, and how that then influences things in your mind, in your body, all of these things are connected to the sixth commandment. And so since God has fashioned us not to be at enmity with each other, particularly as those redeemed in Christ, not to live with strife with one another, not to be divided, not to be filled with hate and vengeance and wrath and spite towards one another. Then we need to make no provision for the flesh and have a peaceable and a kindly spirit toward others. We also in obedience to the sixth commandment, need to have a forgiving disposition towards each other because we will offend each other from time to time and we will need to forgive one another. As those made alive in Christ, as those forgiven and renewed, our life in God is founded upon God's forgiveness. It is the forgiven who will enjoy eternal life. Why will we live forever? Because God has forgiven us. So, a respect for the life that begins and ends in God will reflect this centrality of forgiveness. Forgiving disposition is obedience to the sixth commandment, a readiness to be reconciled, an eagerness to be reconciled. We ought to be like our God, like uh, our merciful and gracious God, we ought to be eager. To pour forth mercy and forgiveness in our relationships. We ought to be happy and joyful to forgive those who have offended us. Not only are to we have a readiness to be reconciled, we are to have forbearance. We are to have commitment today because of the way that God has bound us together in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We are to have a commitment today to forgive the offenses of tomorrow. We have to be willing to suffer wrong rather than insist on our rights all of the time. To be willing to forgive tomorrow in the future. Lastly, then, Paul calls us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we mentioned at the beginning, life is in him. And the sixth commandment is about life. So this is really where we're driving to. As Christians, you obey the sixth commandment by living in union with Christ by faith. You live in obedience to the sixth commandment by making Christ your all because Jesus Christ is your life by faith. John Newton says this, The true believer builds upon the person and word of Christ as the foundation of his hope. He enters by him as the only door to the knowledge, communion, and love of God. He feeds upon him by faith in his heart with thanksgiving as the bread of life. He embraces his righteousness as the wedding garment, whereby alone he expects admission to the marriage feast of heaven. He gains all his strength and comfort from Christ's influence. He entrusts himself wholly to Christ's care. Sensible of his own ignorance and defects and his many enemies, he receives Christ as his teacher and priest and king. He obeys his commands. He confides in his mediation. He expects and enjoys his powerful protection. In a word, he renounces all confidence in the flesh. And he rejoices in Jesus Christ as his Savior. Jesus says, or 1 John chapter 5, there the Apostle John says, This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John chapter 5, we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 1 John 4, 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Colossians 3, You have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. So we conclude tonight by bearing witness to all of these things in Scripture. Where is the only place to find life, possess true life? In Christ, by faith. So where does the Christian begin to offer genuine obedience to the sixth commandment? By putting on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith by making him the center of all that you do spiritually. As Newton said, he is our hope, our confidence, our righteousness, our teacher, our guide, our anchor, our hope, our all in all. He is our life. As we put him at the center, his life will be manifest in us. And only then, only united to Christ, dying to ourselves with his life being manifest in us, only then can we truly live in a way which manifests the sacredness, the importance of life. What is life all about? For us, it's about Jesus Christ, living in him by faith and letting his life manifest itself in the life that our sovereign God gives to us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to look into your word and to these great truths. We pray that you will implant these things deep within us, that we might live for your honor and glory. Forgive us once again of our sins and uh, renew us as we come to you. And ask for you to fill us up once again and be with us in the week ahead. In Christ's name, amen.